0: everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from flatlining.net, and with me as he has been is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist, Ron Haurigan. Ron, welcome back to the program.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Ron, we're going to spend some time today talking about a uh, investigation published by ProPublica that you were interviewed for and quoted in in the article, and uh, you were also part of a pretty lengthy webinar um, produced by ProPublica and the Capital Forum uh, about Sigma's uh, denial habits. Uh, is, is I think is the right way to refer to it. Uh, with how they deny claims uh by doctors they focused on one particular patient but i think today we want to take kind of a high level analysis of of how it works and and why um you know why why an insurance company want to deny claims like these so i guess let's start with the claims process for the people that don't know that aren't as involved in healthcare as we are how does the claims process generally work uh, for provide after you after you go in and you see your doctor how does the claims process work from there
1: yeah so it's really one of the core functions of an insurance company to pay your medical claims um, and the way the process works is there's a process when the claim is submitted where the insurance company first of all tries to scrub the claim to make sure it's a valid claim so they'll make sure that you're actually one of their members um, that you actually have active insurance with them on the date of service for the claim, they'll make sure that it's a covered benefit. So if you if your doctor submitted a claim for let's say cosmetic surgery, they might say, "Oh, well, we're not paying for that. That's not a covered benefit." Mm-hmm. Um, they'll go through scrubs to make sure that it's a claim that actually could have happened. For example if my doctor submitted a claim on me for a hysterectomy, they would probably deny that and say that's a difficult procedure to do on a man. Right. (laughs) Um, So they'll go through all of these scrubs to determine if that claim is valid. Once those scrubs have happened, then they will apply benefits to it. Um, How much do they pay, et cetera. Now in the middle of that will come a process by where they're going to look at some claims and determine if they are medically necessary. Um, Now, Medical necessity is a pretty gray term. It's not a mm-hmm. black, white, easily defined term. And part of what the insurance carrier is doing there for the employers that they're working for is they're saying that I'm not going to pay for things that aren't medically necessary and I'm going to review those. Most people believe that all those reviews happen by a medical professional, a doctor, reviewing the actual the actual chart of the patient, etc., to determine whether that service or test or image should have been ordered, was medically necessary. And if it's not, they will deny it on those grounds. So, if everything comes clean and they don't have any reason to deny it, they'll issue a check and they'll pay the claim. So that's sort of how the the process works at a at a pretty high level.
0: So if they make the decision then, the determination that a particular procedure was not medically necessary, and obviously it's going to vary by state because states have have different laws. I think governing how they review certain things. How can they? How do they come to the conclusion that something? In an ideal world, we'll get to reality in a minute. In an ideal world, how would they come to a conclusion that something is not medically necessary?
1: Well, and there becomes the real issue, is that determination of medical necessity. Medical necessity is defined differently in in each state, but but it's a really pretty similar definition. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was, it's in most of the state definitions are sort of a community standards within the standard of that practice or that specialty in that community, okay? But that's a very nebulous thing. So what you've got is potentially an ordering or, or, or providing physician saying, I think that this test or this study or this procedure is medically necessary. And you've got a different physician reviewing it saying, I disagree. I don't think you should have done that, or I don't think there was a reason to do that. Um, And that's the difficult part of this is who's right. Um, Now, the other question and what the ProPublica article came into was, how much information is that medical director at Cigna or one of the other carriers actually reviewing before they make that determination? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, We understand that physicians can have a difference of opinion, and that really wasn't the the gist of the article. The gist of the article was, is the physician making the decision signing off on that denial? Are they really reviewing anything? to make that determination, or are they just signing a stack of denials?
0: Well, th- let's get to that part, because that's the reality part now of how it, it, it actually works. You know, with the, how it should work is, you know, whether or not something is actually medically necessary, and unfortunately, in the real world, those aren't the the qualifications that seem to be taking place. And as ProPublica uh, investigated and reported on, that Cigna has developed a, uh, a system um, for reviewing certain claims, can you before they go to the medical director? Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So, um, first of all, th- there are definitely plenty of claims, um, usually very serious claims, very expensive claims that are reviewed in depth by medical directors that Mm -hmm. look at chart notes, et cetera. So I'm not saying this is what happens all the time, Mm -hmm. but what ProPublica found and and is true, I think, you know, pretty much across the industry in one way, shape or form is that the companies are looking for ways to quickly without a physician opening up a, you know, a medical record or, or chart information quickly look at these services and use some sort of an algorithm or computer program To issue a denial without the physician really considering anything. So the reality is that the story pointed out Cigna has a computer system that um, looks for certain indications, an algorithm, this diagnosis with this um, test or this procedure or the lack of this diagnosis with this test or this procedure and it batches them together. There may be a nurse that batches them together and, and he or she may review something, we're not sure, and in essence all of these things are given to a medical director to with a one click sign them um and they therefore issues those denials sort of in mass so it'd be a little bit like you know the irs rejecting your tax return from a computer program um the difference is tax law tends to be fairly specific whereas this definition of medical necessity is very nebulous
0: mm-hmm. and i'm assuming that on the on a public on the public the face value of what signa or any of the other insurance companies would probably argue is that they do this for efficiency purposes they don't want to you know waste too much time otherwise they'd never get to all of the claims um do you think that would be a a valid argument from them or do you think it's used more um aggressively for for monetary or profit gain
1: well it Yes, they they definitely would say they do this for an efficiency standpoint. I mean, in the article, they talk about one medical director issuing sixty thousand denials in a month. Okay, there's no way that mm-hmm. a human could review sixty thousand, you know, patient records and make that denial. Um, so it's definitely for efficiency purposes, um, and they don't want to sort of spend the time, you know, having a medical director review a a three hundred dollar test. Okay, now. But that begs the question, if I'm the person receiving that test or that service, you know what happens to me? Um, why do I get auto denied when in my case it it might be medically necessary and I think in the in the story that they pulled out the the patient the one patient that they used an example, I think you you'd have a hard time arguing that the test that got denied wasn't medically necessary because the test came up positive and it proved that his doctor's hunch on what was wrong with this patient was true. Mm-hmm. so how do you go back and say it wasn't med- wasn't medically necessary when that was the test that gave them a definitive diagnosis and then allowed that physician to proceed with a course of treatment. So mm-hmm. um, yeah absolutely it's done for efficiency's sake it's done to redu- to save money um, it's done to reduce the cost of, of paying certain claims but I think the, the question becomes but at the expense of what? Um, at the expense of what happens to some of these patients.
0: And I think it's important to point out, too, that this is different from poor coding practices or wrongly coding particular procedures when they're sent for claims.
1: Yeah, this isn't a this isn't a coding. This isn't a you know I I, I coded a hysterectomy on a male or I I up something. The coding and everything is correct. I mean this in the case of the the anecdotal story, it was the right coding for the test. The test happened. The test came back positive. The doctor said, hey, you've got a vitamin D deficiency. That's why you know you're in trouble. We're going to fix that. Um, and then after the fact, they got a denial. Said, oh, it wasn't medically necessary. Well, that's a little tough to. Take that position when the test came back positive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how do you how do you sort of take that position? But it was because it was one of those mass denials.
0: Do you think that the instance of the patient mentioned in the ProPublica story? Um, do you think that that was a mistake for the system to to deny in the way that it did? In it that I mean, not that it you know not metaphysically was it a mistake, but actually, in, did the system that they created fail, and it should have been processed as 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 you know medically necessary, but something happened where it didn 't process it that way, and that 's why they 're getting the attention that they got
1: well um, i, I don 't think the system failed per se because it did what it was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. It denied all of these claims that have certain attributes, whatever those attributes are. Where it failed was it failed in my opinion it failed the patient mm-hmm. because yes. what this is is supposed to be a, a you know a gray area it's not supposed to be a black and white area that's why you know their benefits are structured to say this test may be covered um, because in the area of medical necessity they're saying in some situations for patients who need it this is covered in other situations um, there may be very all right, let's take um a patient who presents with, you know, no symptoms. This individual had symptoms that caused his doctor to think it might be a vitamin D deficiency. I've got no symptoms. I've got no history of vitamin D deficiency. I have not I'm not presenting with any complaints. Okay, in that mm-hmm. situation If I'm the patient and the doctor orders a vitamin D test, he might be doing it for financial reasons. It should be denied. Mm -hmm. That isn't medically necessary. Just like an MRI is not medically necessary the first time I have a minor headache. Right. Okay. The problem is you can take some of those patients and change the presentation just a little bit, and it suddenly is. In the case of this patient, he had symptoms. Mm -hmm. He was having, you know— uh, pain in his bones, joints, etc. That's what made the doctor think I need to get a test to either confirm or rule this out. In the case of the headache and the MRI, if I present and say, "Doctor, I'm having this bad headache," and oh yeah, and by the way, I'm getting floaters in my left eye, and and I present with another symptom, well, that might be enough for the doctor to say, "You know what? Now I'm concerned that we're dealing with a uh, acoustic neuroma or some other mm-hmm. condition," and the only way I can confirm that is the MRI. So, the point is that when you take a computerized denial scenario without any sort of human review, you by definition are going to deny some that are medically necessary. And then what happens to that patient?
0: Mm-hmm. Why do you think that using Signal or any of the other companies, if they've got similar systems, why are they so successful? Is it there, there's not enough pushback from patients or physicians? Or is it just that. You know, what, what What makes them successful? Why do they keep doing it?
1: Well, um, they keep doing it because there's a lot of money in doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, I, I will say part of that money is probably very necessary denials, meaning denials for things that truly aren't necessary. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're definitely finding those and that saves them money. Um, the other reason is that on appeal, the, the appeal process is fairly cumbersome. And not intuitive or easy, and so a lot of patients or a lot of physicians don't appeal, so they save money on those. Um, sometimes it can act as almost the Hawthorne effect. You know, if I'm if the doctors know they're watching it, they might not order it even if they do think it's medically necessary. So there's a number of reasons, but the bottom line is they're successful because it's quick, it's easy for them to do. The amount that come through on appeal where they have to actually pay for is not, you know, doesn't offset the the savings that they do by denying them all. It's a little bit like, and it's different, but it's a little bit like those, those horror stories we hear of, you know, the uh, uh, product manufacturer saying, well, how much is it going to cost to recall that uh, product or that car for that known problem? Compare that to how much we'd be sued for and would lose in court. And if the lawsuits are less than the recall cost, well, then it's on our financial interest not to recall it. Um, In this case, the cost or the, you know, the impact to the patients um, isn't enough to them to not want to do and save the money in the other area.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the ProPublica piece uh, says that about 5% of people appealed denials resulting from the system that Cigna had had developed. Um, Furthering your point that you just made that it's really not a lot of people
1: yeah and these tend to be um high volume fairly low dollar claims now when I say low dollar, I don't mean ten bucks mm-hmm. um low dollar in the grand scheme of we're not talking about transplants here those get reviewed by a medical director in in great detail. We're not talking about you know very expensive surgeries like you know cardiac bypass surgery. we're talking about things like tests um imaging you know uh, c t mRI you know, lab tests, et cetera, that are high volume but fairly low dollar. And it's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why they don't get appealed as much. If you get a denial on a $50,000 surgery, you're going to appeal it. Right. If you get a denial on a $300 test, you might go, oh, geez, okay, fine, I'll just pay it. Or the provider of the service might just write it off, mm-hmm. which point that's sort of free money for the insurance companies.
0: So out of the – because we've talked about it and you've made the distinction between the – Actually, not medically necessary services, and then others like the patient here in this ProPublica piece that were medically necessary but it got deemed medi- not medically necessary. Okay. What do you think the ratio is between actually not medically necessary and the ones that are incorrectly deemed not medically necessary?
1: I think it depends on what the what the test or what the service is. Okay, um, I think there are definitely some. Um, some tests, some services that get billed where the vast majority of them truly aren't medically necessary. I think that definitely occurs. Mm-hmm. And I think there are probably other tests where, you know, it's a much higher percentage that are truly medically necessary. I don't think it's a scenario where they're denying things where they're 95% medically necessary. I don't think they would do that. Um, but again, it keeps getting back to this isn't a numbers game if you're the patient. Um If you're one of one and that test gets denied, you know, some pretty bad things can happen. And and I know that the carriers will talk about the fact that this happens after the fact. So care was not um, interrupted. Okay. And that's true-ish. Okay. And what I mean by that is as the carriers start denying these things, let's take these vitamin D deficiencies Mm -hmm. or certain MRIs, et cetera. The ordering physicians start to figure this out. Okay, And now you could imagine patient A sitting in the exam room and the doctor saying, look, I think you might have a vitamin D deficiency. I want to order this test. But I got to tell you, it might get denied after the fact. And if it does, you're going to have to pay for it. And the patient says, gee, so you know how much is that? Well, you know, X dollars. Say it's 300 bucks. Um, The patient may say, well, look, I can't take that chance. I don't have that kind of money right now. Mm -hmm. And they can forego it you know, what about the, you know, the patient that's presenting with some interesting symptoms and it's an MRI and the doctor says, well, that, you know, that could be Mm $1,500. That could be $2,000. Well, I certainly don't have that money. Well, let's do something else. Okay. So what happens to those patients who just forego that care? Um, What happens to them and, and sort of who's responsible in that scenario. So it's true that the payers are saying, well, I'm not denying care. I'm just denying payment, and I'm only doing it after the fact. But for an awful lot of these services, denial of payment truly does mean denial of the care because the patients can't afford it. And and how many of those are they avoiding the patient ever getting that done?
0: How, how much do you think that harms American public health?
1: Well, again, I, I don't think it's a scenario where it's you know, massive numbers of people, but I do think it's a scenario where if it's if it's you, it's sort of one of one. Um, it, it's interesting. I you know I on a, an entirely different topic. Um, you know I heard a um, somebody in the House of Representatives arguing that, you know, we look at certain things in the safety perspective differently than others, and they were arguing that, you know, we had one child hurt from a treadmill, and that product had to be pulled because of product safety. Mm-hmm. Well, how many people have been hurt because of this practice, but yet the insurance companies don't get pulled from a safety perspective? Mm-hmm. If these were a device and it did this kind of damage, it'd be immediately pulled off the market. So that's the point. It's not millions of people that are being, I think, injured by this. But, again, if it's you, it can be fairly serious. They can be one-on-one, and there doesn't seem to be any any major recourse to mm-hmm. that.
0: What do you think, uh, we'll start with, we'll do patients and providers here separately. What do you think the key takeaways from an investigation like this, uh, or, or just having the knowledge of how insurance companies operate in this particular circumstance, what do you think some key takeaways should be for patients?
1: Well, I think for patients, the first one is when you get a letter that says something's denied and it's signed by a medical director, that doesn't mean very much. Okay, that okay. medical director may or may not have ever even considered any of the uh, impacts of your, uh, you know, of your case or, or any of the specific details. That may be just a push button signature. Okay, so that's number one. Number two is if you, you and your doctor truly feel that this service was necessary,
0: Ron, thanks for coming on. Which doesn't
1: mean it came up with a positive test, you know. There's just almost as much value in getting a test that says, well, it isn't a vitamin D D deficiency or the MRI is clean, Mm -hmm. because then it tells the doctor, I got to look somewhere else. Right. Um, So if you and your doctor truly think it's medically necessary, then appeal it. You know, go through the cumbersome process. You and or your employer paid for this insurance, and you have the right to use it. Um, So I, I think those are the two big takeaways for the patient is you know understand you've got some rights to the appeal and don't just look at it and say, well, another doctor looked at it, I guess it wasn't medically necessary because that's just not always the case.
0: Mm-hmm. What about for, for providers then? What, what should they take away from this?
1: For providers, it's understanding what can happen to your patients. Um, providers try to be advocates for their patients and it can be very difficult at times. What do you say to the individual when you say, look, I want to order this test, but it may be denied and you're mm-hmm. doing them service by telling them I'm just telling you you know I had one paid I had another one denied um, and then the patient says well I can't afford that you know so um, and that that's very frustrating for physicians so you know understanding what can happen to them understanding the game that's getting played as much as possible even though it's not really your job try to help them out with that say well you know let's I really think you need to get this done and then you know I'll give you whatever supporting documentation I can to help Um, help you appeal it if it gets denied after the fact
0: Mm -hmm. two kind of last questions on on this issue and the first is you know how much we'll use signa as an example because that's who the article is about how much complaining does do patients need to take to their employers and then their employers need to take the Cigna before a practice like this changes
1: well, I, and I think that's the other thing, to is let your employer know what's happening. Your employer is, in essence, paying the bill. Um, they're the one that that insurance company is working for, um, and they should know the service you're getting, especially in an environment like this. Mm-hmm. You know, right now in this labor environment, employers are looking for employees, you know, and can't staff up to what they need to. So it's a very – you know, if you're an employee or it's a it's a seller's market – well, then let those employer groups know, hey, if this is going to keep going, if your insurance company is going to keep doing this, I can find somebody else who has a different insurance company mm-hmm. that doesn't do that same thing to me. So, um, you know, the, the employees should complain to their employer group complaining to the insurance company. If you're an individual member is not going to do anything, right? They really don't care. Now the employer group, that's an entirely different mm-hmm. situation.
0: Particularly if you're with large employer groups, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, Exactly. Exactly.
0: Now, you and I would both be skeptical of – I think we would be skeptical of any sort of government regulation, although some regulation is always a little bit necessary. Um, is this a problem that can be solved with a little bit of regulation?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I think you know, I'm, – I'm not a big fan of, of over-government regulation, but one of the areas where I think government regulation can do a good job are areas where what is in the best interest of a corporation – is not in the best interest of either the general public or individuals who are interacting with that corporation. Mm -hmm. I think we have a perfect example of this in OSHA, okay? Mm -hmm. There was a a period of time in this country where it was incredibly dangerous to work in certain factory sites, industries, etc. And if you were injured, you just lost your job. Okay, mm-hmm. and we created. We realized that you know it really wasn't in the factory's best interest to create a, an incredibly safe work environment. So we created regulation and somebody to go around and make sure that these things are safe. Um, and workplace injuries and and deaths, et cetera, went way down. Okay, mm-hmm. we could do a similar thing here. We could have, um, I think, a couple of things. First of all, I think there needs to be one set of coverage criteria. Okay. Why should something, a test, be considered medically necessary and covered by one insurance and not by another? Mm -hmm. Um, Or one patient in one state and not another? Okay. The same presentation should either be medically necessary or not. So that would make it much easier if there was one set of rules, so to speak. Secondly, um, there needs to be a process where, uh, an efficient process where the appeal of a decision on medically necessary can happen. It can happen quickly um, with the right specialty. Um, you know, you, I, if it's a situation where my neurologist is ordering a brain MRI, I don't want that reviewed by a family practitioner. Right. Okay. That's not a, a jury of your peers, so to speak, if you're the ordering physician. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be a process where those things can be reviewed, reviewed efficiently, and that's something the government could set up you know, where a patient says, Hey, I I got denied this MRI, um, and I think it's be necessary. My doctor's gonna send his notes, the carrier's gonna send the coverage policy or or why they think not and, and have it reviewed very fairly quickly by somebody and say yay or nay. To be honest, if 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 that were there, I think it would end a lot of the the payers um, denying things inappropriately if they knew that it was going to go to appeal and they were going to mm-hmm. get overturned, so to speak. Um, so I, I do think this is an area where the government could step in and regulate it. And really what we're talking about is making sure that there's an honest playing field here, that mm-hmm. patient, patients have the right to um, some sort of an appeal, um, and that the guidelines and criteria are clear and the rules of the game are clear.
0: Right, no that that makes absolute sense, and and I I tend to agree with you.
1: And and one one last thing, and and, and the reason why we need to do this is there is so much money involved with this practice. I mean, um, in the article, and this is one last note, the article they talk about a physician who sort of helped Cigna develop this, Dr. Alan Muni okay a pediatrician Mm -hmm. and and i'm i got no disrespect for alan he's a smart guy and everything but so alan was um for quite a while um a medical director for cigna they ended up hiring him and he retired in um uh december of 2018 okay now this public information it was in their sec filings Upon his retirement, he was given a retirement package. Now, this is in addition to whatever 401k, mm-hmm. you know compensation, st- stock had already been invested, any of that stuff. This is just, hey, Alan, thanks for being here. Thanks for helping us develop these kind of programs. He was given a retirement package of $7.8 million. Hmm. Okay. Now, that is a thank you for all the money he had saved them largely by developing these kind of denial systems. Well, you don't give a guy $7.8 million unless he's saved you multitudes beyond that. Mm-hmm. And with that much money tied to these kind of practices, that's why I think you, you need to have some sort of governmental oversight to it or some very strict rules about it. You know, The last thing I would say that, that is bothersome about this story and about this practice is... Every time a physician signs something, an order, a prescription, a chart note, uh, you know, whatever it is, they take responsibility. That's why they're signing. Mm -hmm. They know that by signing that chart note or that prescription or that order that if something bad happens, it can come back to them. It's called malpractice cases, you know. The only time that doesn't occur is when a physician signs a denial. There is zero responsibility. They can't be sued personally. They can't be held responsible. So if they deny something and a patient doesn't get what they need and that patient dies, you can't go after that physician. And it's extremely hard to go after the insurance company. So that's the other thing that bothers us, is They do this with sort of immunity. If your physician were... Signing sixty thousand prescriptions in one month, and by clicking batches of prescriptions, not only would they be found guilty of malpractice, they would lose their license and probably be thrown in jail. Mm-hmm. We've seen that kind of activity in the, you know, in the opioid crisis, right. where doctors yep. were just signing massive prescriptions, and guess what? They went to jail. And the medical director in this story that you know that denied sixty thousand physicians in one month probably got a bonus. Mm-hmm. So. That's the last thing I want to say. On nope. that.
0: Well, I, I appreciate you bringing in some light to this, and I, I'm glad to see that you popped up in this article because I know that uh, someone else is appreciating you as a good source uh, of information, and I appreciate you coming on the program today to help explain it a little bit more.
1: Not a problem. Happy to be here.
0: You can find the link to the ProPublica article in the show notes for this program as well as the uh, recorded version of the webinar that took place afterwards that also included our own Ron Harkin. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. You can subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howard, I'm Matthew Handley, have a good week.